Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzezemski. And welcome to the Catholic Cafe. We're in the luxurious corner booth at the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and I'm here with Tom Dorian. Hello, Deacon Jeff. How are you doing, Tom? I'm great. How are you? I'm thrilled, and today we have a great show. I know we do. I, I see a, a chef uh, amongst us. That's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, and he's going to help us out with a pretty uh, heady topic here. I hear that. We're talking about the Reformation. That is a heady topic. Well, it is. And, uh, you know, we only have a half hour here, but uh, we're going to try to do about 500 years of history. <laughs> In one half hour. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll figure out how and to And we're going to mention Rebecca with one C at the same time. Rebecca with one C is our waitress? It is. Well, we're going to get Rebecca over here in just a second. With one C, yes. And we're going to get Father, uh, uh, what's his name again? Father Ben Bradshaw. I knew that. I know. Father Ben Bradshaw really. is going to be with us in a second, too. Excellent. First, I did want to mention about the uh, about the Reformation that... Uh, that by all accounts, the Reformation was one of the saddest chapters in church history, was it, it was. not, Tom? Yes, it yeah. was. The divisions that occurred with uh, within the body of Christ are, you know, they're, they're yet to be repaired. Right. Even nearly 500 years later, we still yes. have uh, issues that have arisen because of that whole process. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in hopes of maintaining a sort of a healthy dialogue and uh, try to, to get some, uh, some healing going on, we thought it would be beneficial for us to do a show about what the Catholic Church teaches about the Reformation, what the Catholic Church's view of the Reformation is, and maybe all the things that were good that came out of the Reformation, Mm -hmm. which there were some, so we want to talk about those. With that, we're going to introduce our guest. Great. He's uh, Father Ben Bradshaw. He's the head chef at the Catholic Cafe, (laughs) (laughs) and he's joining us here in the Luxurious Corner booth. So welcome, Father Ben. Thank you so much for having me. Praise God. So, Father Ben, you know, we're going to, the way we like to do things here is we like to ask the toughest question first. (laughs) We don't want to hold back. We want to just ask that question. Why did the Reformation happen? Mm. The Reformation happened because we needed reform. Uh, the, the church, in, in many ways, needed reform. Uh, at the time, Martin Luther, 16th century, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, we had others. We had, uh, even before them, uh, John Huss. And uh, we had John Wesley, even before the time of Calvin and before the time of Martin Luther. Um, that that uh, in some ways attacked the church for what they thought was wrong with the church. But about the time that John Calvin and Martin Luther came along, the church did need reform. And it was never their intention, actually, to leave and start a church. You know, we now, if we look at the modern world, we have about 33,000 varieties of Christianity in the world. 33,000. And it's long stretch from... What our Lord said in John's Gospel, Lord, I pray that they may be one. Ut unum sent in Latin. I pray that they may be one. And so we've come a long way, but we needed we needed reform. Yes, the church was definitely in need of reform. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of other things going on in the world at that time. And there were mm-hmm. also a lot of uh, uh, nationalistic, uh, socioeconomic, political, uh, and even governance issues that were going on uh, that also affected this. And, and Tom... You know, what would you call that when all those things come together? The perfect storm. That's right. So it was ripe and ready to happen mm-hmm. uh, when all those folks that you just mentioned uh, before came about uh, mm-hmm. and, and they were addressing some key issues. But let's, let's focus, if we will, because what we, what we have today sort of still as a result of the Reformation, we still have key issues 
at stake that people want to discuss and try to find right. out what was going on. What was going on during the church at that time? What were some of the key issues, the problems that the church really did have in, in need of a reform? Mm. Good question. Yeah, I th- the, probably the big one with Martin Luther was the selling of indulgences. And we still have indulgences. We still, uh, we, this is the year of St. Paul, and there's a Pauline indulgence that's attached. And um, an indulgence is the remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sin. It's a technical definition. But at the time, we had guys, uh, unethical guys like Tetzel. Yeah, Johann Tetzel. Yeah. And his, his famous phrase, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Mm. Now, I don't know if he actually said that, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's attributed, attributed to him. To him. Yeah. And basically, he was basically doing that yeah. when Pope Leo X sent him out to uh, raise money for the, the basilica at Rome. Yeah, and this, it, it should be differentiated between what we always say in the Catholic Church, the, peop- the people of the church and the teachings of the church. The people of the church are very much in need of reform. I mean, uh, Lord knows I, I, I need to go to confession just as much as anybody else, and, and I always pray every day, God, to forgive me. But the teachings of the faith are, are without error. And so at the time, we had simony, we had pluralism, um, we had uh, absenteeism, pluralism being uh, uh, bishops that purchased the right to hold multiple offices, uh, absenteeism, where a bishop would be the bishop at a certain diocese, but never actually show up. Right. So the people that were in his spiritual care were not being cared exactly. for. Yeah. Right. Which course, is wrong. Well, you mentioned simony, and that's that's the selling of spiritual mm-hmm. goods and uh, uh, or church offices or whatever. Um, and so we had those issues going on, but we also had problems with our clergy in terms of knowing mm-hmm. the faith. Right. Absolutely. Many of the clergy at the time, um, the the seminary system was not actually set up until the Council of Trent, which started in 1545. It was the longest of the 21 ecumenical councils that we've had. And uh, 1545 to 1565, I believe. And after that, the seminary system was set up, especially St. Charles Borromeo, the patron saint of seminarians, was the one that worked a lot with getting the seminary system set up. But up until that time, a lot of the priests learned from other priests, and so they would. Um, there was a real lack of education. This is very scandalous to Martin Luther, and Martin Luther, as we know, of course, was a monk. That he was an Augustinian monk, and um, um, and I think fifteen, if I'm not mistaken, nine months or ten months, less than a year after he uh, became a monk, he was ordained. So, I mean, it's. You know, it's a long stretch from where we are today. It takes many years. That's right. Brief, yeah. That's right. So then if you have, we'll call them uneducated clergy, then by, by the result of that is always going to be what happens to the faithful. Mm. They're not going to know their faith either, are they? There's, an, uh, there's a Latin expression that the early patristic fathers used to say, nemo dat nun quan habat, which means you cannot give what you do not have. You cannot give what you do not have. It's a fundamental principle. I can't write each one of you guys a check for a hundred grand because I do not have it. <laughs> but if I get to the bank first, <laughs> if you only, well, I don't know. So you're saying you don't have a hundred grand? Uh, yeah, it bounces high. <laughs> <laughs> He's holding his hand very high for those that are listening at home. Um, so obviously, you know, yeah, there's there are a lot of problems going on, and as you mentioned, not with the church, but with the people within the church. Mm. I mean, it seems that ever since that fateful day in the Garden of Eden, we've had problems, right? Right, And so human nature takes over, and the result is always going to be some kind of sinful behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. There's always been scandal in the church, just because mm-hmm. it's human beings, correct? Right. Okay. Was it a rampant thing at that time, or was it pretty isolated? 
It was, uh, the, and, and you can, I want to say, you could find historians that would say, argue both sides. And I'm, I'm a parish priest and not a historian, but I would say this, is that it was pretty rampant, enough to where um, when Martin Luther came along, it was a powder keg. Wow. And Martin Luther was, he spoke in a very folksy German. Mm-hmm. He spoke in a way that people could understand. And uh, he, he was tangible, you know, and very, as they would say, user-friendly. He wasn't speaking down. Exactly. You know, they could, they could really identify with him. And a lot of the, Martin Luther's points were, were, he was absolutely right about a lot of things. And we would argue that he kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater with mm-hmm. regards to some of the teachings that he taught. And, but um, but certainly the time was was ripe in the sense that when he when he uh, nailed his ninety five theses and uh, on Halloween on on October thirty first fifteen seventeen to the door of Wittenberg, um, the time was ripe. You know, obviously we live in a uh, a day and age when we love to convene commissions and uh, appoint oversight committees and hold hearings. We want to find out exactly where the fault lies, but the fault really was with, with both sides. Definitely, and I think that we see that, we saw that with some of the great saints, uh, that was some of the great saints that came in what we call the Counter-Reformation. We had Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Charles Borromeo. Angela Marici. I mean, some of these phenomenal saints, you know, of course, St. Ignatius started the Jesuits. They knew that we needed reform. But even before that, you know, there was a call to reform that wasn't answered, right? The, right. The, well, that would be the... Lateran the, the, Five. Right, the Fifth Lateran Council. So there were some good, some good guys thinking good thoughts at that time that, that went unanswered. Uh, and the Fifth Lateran Council did. Absolutely. In fact, the Fifth Lateran Council, it, that ended the year that, that Martin started the, the Reformation. Hmm. Yeah, the same year. It's very interesting. Only a few months later, Martin started the Reformation. And so it called for reform. We needed the reform, most definitely, but not everybody heeded that call. You can implement reform in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, as you mentioned, throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can take all of the teachings, erase them all, and start fresh. You know, based on mm-hmm. your knowledge and what you have right there in front of you and say, well, this is the way I think it should be. Or you can try to weed out that which is negative, the negative influence. Mm-hmm. You know, go sift through it and, and save the good stuff. Definitely. And I think it's important that we always remember, especially as uh, I would just say as Christians, that all reform, of course, begins with reform of self. It always goes back to, you know, our Lord says, you know, before you start taking the plank, <laughs> out of your neighbor's eye, you know, and, and Absolutely. That, we, that we look at ourselves first and take a long, hard look in the mirror. Some people, they think that the Trinity is me, myself, and I. You know? So as Catholics, <laughs> we look back at, uh, at the Reformation, not so much now with antagonism towards Martin Luther and the other concerned Catholics with him, you know, not so much as with, with, with anger and bitterness, but maybe with a little bit of humility, you know, and say, you know what, we messed up. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't handle it well when we were given the opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and even today, this is one of the this, just the so beautiful things that, that we have in common. We, we share so much in common with our, with our Protestant brothers and sisters, many more things than people would imagine. Mm-hmm. I mean, a great example of that is the pro-life movement. Uh, we, we, we stand in many ways shoulder to shoulder with so many of, of different Christian denominations uh, fighting for the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. Well, we're going to talk about more of that in just a moment when we come back. We're having a wonderful conversation here about the Reformation with Father Ben Bradshaw. But first, I do want to remind everyone about our website at www.thecatholiccafe.com where you can find a wealth of information 
including MP3s of this and other programs. You can utilize our podcast feature. We have lots of links to other great Catholic resources on the web. Also, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love you to email me at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And as the 11th commandment tells us, (laughs) thou shalt not toucheth that dial. (laughs) We'll be right back. I'm Bester Zemski, and this is another great moment in church history. St. Charles Borromeo was born in Italy in 1538 to a family of means and influence. His father was Count Gilbert Borromeo, and his mother, Margaret Medici, was the sister of Pope Pius IV. He received the clerical tonsure, a formal step in preparation for the ordained priesthood, when he was 12 and was sent to a Benedictine abbey for his education. He fared well in his studies and grew to love the church with all his heart and soul. He became very active in church affairs and felt called to a role of leadership. Later, when his older brother died, St. Charles was urged by his family to leave his church duties, return home, and assume leadership of the Borromeo family. They desired that he take a wife and have children so that the family name would live on. But this was a very difficult time for Mother Church. She was caught up in a storm of disagreement and controversy as the Reformation raged against her. After prayerful consideration, St. Charles decided to decline his family's proposal. The Holy Spirit had other plans for him. With a newfound zeal, he devoted himself ever more fervently to the welfare of the church. And he couldn't have done so at a better time. As the 25 sessions of the Council of Trent were winding down, the much-needed reforms decreed by the Council were just beginning. The repercussions of this greatest of the great councils would be felt far and wide and for centuries to come. Strong, loyal church leaders open to the promptings of the Spirit of Truth were desperately needed to help usher in the reforms. St. Charles Borromeo was certainly one of those leaders, and though he received great opposition from many of the corrupt church leadership and institutions of the day, he was a towering force of reform and healing for the church. But perhaps one of his greatest contributions was his effort to develop the seminary system for the proper education and formation of priests. St. Charles felt that the abuses that had run rampant in the church were primarily due to the ignorance of the clergy. For this reason, he focused his attention on the creation of seminaries, colleges, and communities dedicated to those called to holy orders. This focus on teaching the truths of the Catholic faith greatly improved the sanctity, knowledge, preparedness, and effectiveness of the priests. St. Charles Borromeo was indeed one of the great pillars of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. His feast day is celebrated on the 4th of November. I'm Bess Trzemski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. We're still here with Father Ben Bradshaw talking about the Reformation. And Father Ben, are you doing okay over there? I'm doing great. I would love an Eggs Benedict <laughs> with extra hollandaise. That would be splendid. We could get on that. We'll, we'll take care of that. Is that Rebecca going to take care of that for us? It's, Rebecca with one C? It's not quite like asking for a moon rock, but we will get that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, where should we go now? Well, you and I were talking off the air. Uh, That's we? right. You had a great question. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
My question, Father, was this. You know, it, at what point did the Catholic Church finally say, all right, some of this, if not all this, could be our fault? You know, mm-hmm. what, what do we need to do about that? In other words, how long did it take for them to come to their senses right. and realize yeah. this is a big issue? Right. And this is, um, as we were talking about, with Lateran Council 5, there's been, again, just to repeat, 21 ecumenical councils in the history of the Catholic Church, not including the, the, the Council of Jerusalem included in Acts of the Apostles. Okay. But in Lateran 5, they, the, the Council Fathers said, yes, we do need reform. We do need reform. It's, it was the in, in the implementation of that council that, that the ball was dropped. Interestingly enough, that's happened with a lot of the councils, including Second Vatican Council that had problems with impl- implementation. But from the time in 1517 that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door in Wittenberg until the time of the beginning of the Council of Trent, 1545, that's when they said, okay, guys, we need to get our act together. That's, okay. that's about it. But in those years... A lot of stuff was brewing now, you know, and, and Martin Luther is definitely starting to, to make a lot of theological changes uh, to what the church was traditionally teaching. And, and so what are those some of those issues? And some of them are still today issues that typically our separated brothers and sisters in Christ, the Protestants, will be saying, well, this is what I have a problem with Catholicism. I have a problem with these issues. And some of them, remarkably, are 500-year-old issues. Right. You know, there are things from the, the primacy of Peter. The authority of the church, mm-hmm. you know, from the, the sacraments, the, the, all the sacraments, uh, the, the Eucharist especially, and how the real presence of Christ is there in the Eucharist, uh, and uh, the role and authority of Scripture. Where does Scripture come into play? Mm-hmm. Uh, sacred tradition, the relationship of faith and works, purgatory, communion of saints, and then, of course, also the the teachings on Mary. Mm-hmm. Definitely, you know, frequently, uh, you know, the our our Blessed Mother is is forgotten in a lot of um, Mm -hmm. non-Catholic circles today. You know, an interesting sideline there is I think a lot of people would be interested to know what some of the the original reformers, you know, the big three, Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, thought about Mary. Mm. And... And they had some pretty strong devotions to Mary at the time, didn't they? They did. They did, believe it or not. And, and so it's very, very beautiful because there's four classic Marian dogmas in the Catholic Church. There's the uh, Immaculate Conception, uh, the Assumption of Mary, and we have the Virginity of Mary, and we also have uh, Mary, Mother of God as well. And so, um, but they did, absolutely. There's, uh, there's, there's been a lot of... A lot of arguments over the years as in the different Christian communities as to the role of Mary. And many, many people falsely think that we adore Mary. We don't, right? But we go to our Mary just like you go to your mama <laughs> for help. That's know? right. And we're going to have an entire show on Mary and doctrine here coming up. But uh, I just think it's fascinating when, when Mary can be so forgotten sometimes in non-Catholic circles. But then if you look at the history of the Reformation and, and who was driving that, and you want to go back to those fathers of the Reformation, you want to see what they thought about it. There's some wonderful quotes. Martin Luther said in a sermon in 1522, God says, Mary's son is my only son. Thus, Mary is the mother of God. So, mm. you know, Martin Luther believed that Mary was the mother of God. That's one of our one of our doctrines. Uh, Martin Luther also taught Christ was the only son of Mary and the virgin bore no more children besides him. Uh, and then also said, and she remained a virgin after that. Mm. You know, so they believed in the ever virgin Mary. And it's very interesting, too, that, that a lot of the reformers, when we look back at what they actually wrote, and if we read some of the some parts of the Institutes of the Christian Religion from John Calvin, 
um, it's it's amazing. Some of the things that they argue actually sound very Catholic. And, That's right. Um, especially the issue of contraception, for instance. All, all the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, they very much uh, abhorred and and. Uh, and, and talked about how contraception is absolutely unacceptable. Hmm. And so it's very interesting that sometimes we've seen a drift in modern years with different variations of Christianity on that issue, although the original founders of the Reform were very much against it. Hmm. Well, and I think that maybe when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses up on the doors, I don't know that he was intending to create a new church or to destroy the one he was in. I think he was he was reform minded, right? right? He wasn't going to stop being Catholic at that point. I think this sort of grew as it went on, and maybe his reactions to the church as well. Definitely, and his his intention was to reform the church. And John Calvin was not trained at all in theology. He was trained as an attorney. His dad was an attorney, and their intention, in many ways, to was to reform the church. Um, it was at the Diet of Worms. I think it was in um, in fifteen twenty one about that time. When also known as the Diet of Diet Worms. Of worms. <laughs> if you <read>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna pa- I'd rather have the eggs Benedict. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was he was talking before I think Charles V, um, Emperor Charles V, and trying to explain some of his doctrine. And it was at that point that it became very apparent his doctrine was not in conformity with what we believe. Well, I mentioned at the beginning that actually some uh, from from a Catholic perspective, some good things some great things, fantastic things came out of the Reformation. And we call that the Counter-Reformation, not in a negative sense, but basically this is how the the church responded to the need to reform. And so give us a little brief outline mm-hmm. of what the Counter-Reformation included and, and, and basically what it covered. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was awesome. It was awesome. And we are still seeing the great benefits of this. It was kind of like throwing this massive boulder into the ocean, of 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 the church and it and it just ripples out and we still see the great beauty of the of the Council of Trent the the, the Counter Reformation included not just the Council of Trent the longest council in the, in the history of the church but also some of the great saints you know there's an expression that God gives us the saints we need when we need them um, in the amount that we need them. Uh, right now, at this very moment, God is raising up saints for us. But at the time, we had some of these great saints that I mentioned earlier. We had the Jesuits. Uh, we, we had all these great saints, uh, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, the great mystics that started reforming the church and teaching other people um, that they can live holiness. Uh, St. Francis de Sales in Geneva, and, and it, uh, very, very beautiful in his book, The Introduction to the Devout Life. He says, look, we can find holiness in our day-to-day lives. You don't have to be locked up in a monastery, in a convent. You can do this. You can find holiness when you're sweeping the floor, when you're cooking dinner. And, of course, years later, we had the little flower, St. Teresa of, of, of Lisieux. They offered up her little way that we offer up our little acts for holiness. All this fell into this this general time frame. Of course, on the way on the other side of the world, we had the apparitions of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Had 8 million conversions. So a lot is going on at that time to really change the world and Catholicism. And you mentioned the Council of Trent being the longest council. And it really, in a, in a very firm way defined several of the doctrines of the church in no uncertain terms so that we understood these are things that the church 
uh, had always taught. These were not new inventions or new revelations. These were definitions, further understanding. We're going to define this once and for all so everyone understands. Mm-hmm. And those definitions today still stand on so many of the of the issues they, they encountered. It touched on so many issues, everything from the canon of Scripture, reaffirming the Council of Hippo, the Council of Carthage many years before that, um, to liturgy. Um, to the reform of uh, religious life, touched on many beautiful, beautiful things. So, Father, we hear all these things about the problems the church had, the reform it needed, and then the reform it got in the Counter-Reformation and in the Council of Trent, etc. So now here we are, 450 years later, where do we go from here? <laughs> what do we do as a, as a people? Because you mentioned John's Gospel. Jesus prays that, that we may all be one. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Pope Benedict XIV, he lived in, uh, in the 1700s, he said that there is a combination between faith and reason, and we've always believed this. God gave each one of us a mind, and he gave each one of us a heart. And he said that, remember, this is the time of the Enlightenment, not long before that. And he said, faith and reason do not contradict each other. Truth, it comes from the heart. The truth will set you free. Years later, in, in uh, 1869, in the First Vatican Council, and there's a document um, that says that uh, that faith and reason they coincide, right? And we still believe that up until today. John Paul II wrote a, an encyclical called Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. So what do we do now? We educate our minds and we pray. <laughs> we feed our hearts because, as I said, we cannot give what we do not have, and so we have to educate our minds in the truth. But we also have to pray. It's not enough to read, and it's not enough to pray. We need to do both. And everyone needs to be educated. That's one of the things, one of the reasons why we have this show is just as an effort to put Catholic teaching out there so that people understand what the church teaches. So much of what we hear is either, it's either misunderstanding or maybe even myth. Mm-hmm, definitely. You know? And so education comes into play, not for just one side or the other, but both. Everyone needs to know who, who believes what. Absolutely. Wonderful. And, of course, the supernatural help, you know, the prayer. We can't do this on our own. Absolutely. Grace, grace. And, and catechism number uh, 1996 says that gra- grace is a free and undeserved help that we receive from God to respond to him. Amen to that. And, of course, you know, Moses couldn't part the Red Sea without God's help. And without God's help, we're not going to unpart yeah. <laughs> the, the Red Sea that we've created uh, through this division in the church, so we pray that that's going to that's going to heal Personal through God's sanctity, help. Right, wonderful. So let's uh, uh, thank Father uh, Ben for being here, Tom. I mean, it's just amazing uh, discussion Absolutely. about the Reformation. Mm-hmm. I hope folks uh, have heard this and kind of understand where Catholics come from about the Reformation and maybe where we all want to go. And in, in, uh, as Jesus prayed that we all might be one. Mm. Once again, we pray for that every time we have Mass. Absolutely. Wonderful. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being here, Father. Praise God. Thank you so much. Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, your beloved Son prayed that we might all be one. We humbly approach you, asking for your divine assistance in the unity of all Christians. Help us to see past our human-born divisions, so that we might look upon you as the one source of eternal love and truth. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. 
The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.